What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Do I'm here? How are you holding up? Can't be easy to keep working after three days of no sleep. Hard to keep focus. I mean, are you seeing things yet? You know, those little flashes, tricks of light. That's Robin Williams with Al Pacino in Christopher Nolan's Insomnia from 2002. As the follow-up to his mind-bending breakout hit Memento, Insomnia struck some at the time as a frustratingly straightforward thriller. This week, we continue our Nolan oeuvre review with a fresh look. Plus, we'll have thoughts on three new releases, all available online. That and more. Can I get a Pacino ooha ahead on film spotting? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, the theaters are closed, but the movies keep coming, at least if you know where to look. This week, we've got reviews of three new releases, include one that's definitely a golden brick-worthy debut. That's the cozy noir thriller Blow the Man Down, a feature debut set in Down East, Maine, and the Down Under set The True History of the Kelly Gang from director Justin Kurtzel, and... The high school set, Sella and the Spades, one you caught up with, Josh. We're also going to continue our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review with 2002's Insomnia, the black sheep, maybe, of the Nolan filmography. We'll see if it does deserve that reputation later in the show. First, though, let's talk some new movies for a change, including that Australian import, True History of the Kelly Gang. Your mother sold you. Fifteen pound you cost me. You can learn that back. I were but a child, yet I were already traveling full tilt toward the man I would become. That's from the trailer for True History of the Kelly Gang, which is available to rent on demand this weekend. The director is Justin Kurzel, who previously made 2011's The Snowtown Murders. Then in 2015, he did Macbeth, which starred Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. All three of them reteamed for 2016's Assassin's Creed. Now, Kelly Gang is set in colonial Australia, where Kelly and his group of anarchists violently rebel against their British rulers. 1917's George Mackay plays Ned Kelly. The film also stars Russell Crowe, Nicholas Holt, Thomasin McKenzie, and Charlie Hunnam. So, strong cast there. Adam, you were able to get an early look at this one before it's on-demand release. Did the cast live up to its promise? How's the film in general? Some of it definitely did in terms of the cast. This is actually my first Kurzel film. Haven't seen any of the other three that you mentioned, despite the fact that Michael Fassbender has been in those two that you mentioned. And I'm always down for a good Shakespeare adaptation. I can't compare, obviously, this film, The Kelly Gang, to his adaptation of Macbeth specifically, but there is a lot of the Scottish play in his telling of Ned Kelly. Essie Davis from Our Beloved The Babadook plays his mother, 
in this film, and she is not someone to cross. She's domineering. She's vengeful. It's born from years of oppression as a woman and as an Irish woman living under English rule in Australia. And you hear her in the trailer say to a young Ned, you're a man now. You go out and show the world. This isn't a gentle mother's encouragement. It's an order. (laughs) And like Macbeth himself, as Ned gets closer to his fate, the matter he gets. And that unhinged hallucinatory spirit is what Kurzel taps into visually. Think about the late 19th century we get in John Hillcoat's The Proposition. As a counterpoint, this is not that at all. This is realism clashing with fantasy to the point where there are times in certain sequences and shots, Josh, especially a recurring motif of a man riding a horse that feels more like Mordor than the bush hmm. way outside Melbourne. And so I've dropped Macbeth. I've dropped Lord of the Rings. Throw in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and the pop aesthetic of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, except with punk instead. And you get some sense of what watching the true history of the Kelly gang is really like, which may sound really amazing to you and to other people. Yeah, I'm, I'm hooked so far. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And honestly, it was a little bit too much for me. It wants so much to be this fiery sneer that doesn't conform to conventional biography. And it's full of these big ideas about colonialism and storytelling and masculinity and challenging gender and sexual norms. The gang, the Kelly gang, actually wears dresses. For me, it's just all too much of a performative assault to really embrace. And actually, George Mackay is part of it. He's a really intriguing presence and has an unsettling physicality that he definitely brings to this role. A presence was kind of all he was in 1917. That's kind of by the design of that film. And I haven't read anything about his performance, but I wouldn't be shocked to learn that he went really method here, <laughs> that he he went so deep. And as I said, there's there's an intensity to it. There's a real physicality to it, but he's burrowed so deep into it, so deep into Ned Kelly's psyche that he never emerges for me. And I can appreciate the audacity of what Kurzel's doing here and his eye. Our first shot of a young Ned actually is him peering through a slit in his makeshift home while his mother is engaged in a sex act with a paying customer. That's a British officer played by Hunnam. And then later at the end, in his big showdown with authorities, he's wearing iron over his head for protection with a slit for his eyes that matches that exact same point of view. So Kurzel knows what he's doing, absolutely, and he does have a really game cast. Russell Crowe shows up for a little bit in this movie and is a lot of fun as an outlaw who basically pays for, he buys a young Ned as an indentured servant to teach him the trade, and I really like Nicholas Holt in this movie. He shows up maybe about midway through as a really charmingly despicable and entitled English constable who befriends Ned and the family until the family decides that they're not going to subjugate themselves to him like he expects everyone to do. So some juicy, fun performances here, and Kurzel's definitely doing a lot, as I said, in terms of the filmmaking. Sounds like there might even be a little bit of uh, Animal Kingdom in there, too, with a mother-son dynamic and, of course, the Australian setting. So yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by those comparisons. We'll, we'll have to see if I'm able to catch up with it, if it works a little bit better for me. The True History of the Kelly Gang is available to rent on demand 
right now. The new one you caught up with, Josh, is called Sella and the Spades, the directing debut of Tyresha Poe. It had its debut back in January at Sundance, and it came to Amazon Prime this past weekend. In your letterbox review, you wrote, any movie that mixes the DNA of Mean Girls, Brick, and School Days has my attention. We're all over the place with our references right. in this show so far. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, this this could be a lazy shorthand in some ways doing this exercise, but I think it's it is really helpful in this case because um, those are great films with distinct styles, each trying to do something that maybe you hadn't quite seen before done in that way, and mixing it all together is really exciting. That also puts a ton of pressure on a, a relatively small film like Sella and the Spades. And so I don't know if it's the sort of pressure this movie can entirely bear, um, but I like that all of these elements are in here. The, the basic scenario is Sella uh, and the Spades takes place at an elite boarding school. And we follow the illicit dealings and also the, the relationships among various student factions, they're called. And each of these factions, they're essentially like criminal gangs. So Sella, played by Lovey Simone, she runs the drug dealing spades. And, you know, there are maybe some Macbeth, Lady Macbeth specifically, comparisons to make here in, in her ambition and the way she holds a grip on power. She does take an underclassman under her wing, but as we come to learn, you know, it, it may not be for the most altruistic of reasons that underclassman played by Celeste O'Connor. Now, both of those performances are really strong by Simone and O'Connor. Um, there are some good supporting turns, too. I could see this being one of those smaller first films where two or three of the actors in them, and this happened with Mean Girls as well, right, pop up in later films and you really see what what great talents they have there. Um, there's also, you know, the whole criminal element calls on Brick, of course, that this is going on among high schoolers beneath the adults' eyes. It's, it's kind of amusing how little the adults have to play in, in this world. Uh, and then there are some really striking flourishes by Poe as a director, and here's where some of the, the school days, Spike Lee's school days comparisons come in because Sella is also the head of the spirit squad for the school and they have a direct address to the camera routine just about what it's like to be a 17-year-old girl. And that's a really electric sequence and you can see with the direct address style how it might evoke some of those numbers. I mean, across Lee's filmography, but especially in school days. So so a lot of good stuff there that is, that is mixing into its own unique animal. I think where the movie might fall a little bit short is that when you're trying something this ambitious and this particular, you really need to convincingly establish this stylized universe that you're putting together. Um, and you could just think of how that, that school day's campus you could entirely believe in, even though it was outsized in many ways. Same thing for Brick, which was, you know, a completely ludicrous scenario that this film noir mood could take place in a, in a modern high school, but it worked. Um, and I do think Cell in the Spades has trouble kind of it exists somewhere in the middle. It, it's not real world and it doesn't completely realize this this place that is hermetic and sealed on its own. So but that's a tall order. Like I said, that's a really tough juggling act for a first film to pull off. And I think even that sell in the spades uh, has this sorts of ambition and gets as far on it as it can um, is incredibly promising. So so yeah, if it, uh, this is another case where if any of those references sound good to you, it's probably worth giving Sella and the Spades hmm. a shot. Yeah, it definitely sounds interesting. And if it sounds interesting to you, you can check it out 
playing exclusively on Amazon Prime Video right now. Let's get now to something we both saw, Josh, and talk about your perfect tie-in with the movie we're going to get into in the next segment, Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Murder and cops and cover-ups, fundamentally decent people doing questionably moral things in a remote coastal location that is truly as much of a character as any of the players. Let's hear a little bit from the trailer. On a New England isle in a good seaport town To me way below the man down Can you start over? I'm confused. It was confusing. But you had to do it right. Oh no. I lost control. With a brick. You said it was a harpoon. So what are we gonna do now? Should have just called the police. So we're talking about Blow the Man Down, the feature directing debut of Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Crudy. It, like Sella and the Spades, is playing exclusively on Amazon Prime right now. It's set in a main coastal town, and the movie opens with a pair of sisters. They're in their early 20s, mourning the death of their mother. And after a violent episode involving one of the sisters, the pair starts to learn some of the secrets that have defined the town's past. And this is a movie, Josh, I was on board with right from the very opening. Absolutely. Where we get another kind of direct address performance, right? You have this group of fishermen singing this old sea shanty, the title song. Their great voices mixed with the musicality of their tools and their work, and they're performing for us as this little prelude. And they reappear throughout the story, basically like a Greek chorus and... Right from that opening prelude and throughout the film, we get a fair amount of fish heads, so I know you love the movie. <laughs> yes, that was an amusing comparison that uh, Matt Hicks actually made on Twitter. He, he called this uh, combination of Fargo and Leviathan. <laughs> and that actually, <laughs> there you go. believe it or not, it that is. had not crossed Fargo across my mind, of course, but Leviathan had not, even though that opening sequence you described, yes, there are these great insert shots of fish being gutted and you'd, you know hooks going through their eyes as these men sing. And I was on board even from the very opening shot. It's just this, Mm -hmm. you know, a misty harbor, a foggy harbor, one boat sort of lulling back and forth, very peaceful. And the camera then pans to the pier where we get these men singing. So it's kind of a gotcha shot, beautifully composed though, right Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And then we get that amazing sequence. So yeah, I was, I was definitely like you taken pretty quickly with this and maybe rather than pile on more references, which we could do, um, but we've done plenty of that. Can we just go right to Margot Martindale in the supporting turn? I think I think oh she would goodness. demand it, Josh. <laughs> and, and you better deliver what she demands. Yeah. I mean, veteran character actress here playing Enid, who is this older proprietor of uh, basically House of Ill Repute on the edge of town, right? Um, she and her women serve the sailors who come into port. And as Enid, it's, you know, we learn that the basic idea is that because the men are often out at sea, the women essentially run the town and sort of form this crime syndicate in some ways, but also like a good hearted town council in other ways, Mm -hmm. these older women. And the interesting thing, as you said, 
upstanding people doing morally questionable things are when those overlap, right? When, when these women um, start to make different choices or disagree about their choices. But Martindale is Enid, who's both madam and crime boss at the same time, um, yet she's still beholden to a lot of the, the male-dominated traditions of this community. And that's where those men at the beginning are, are crucial. It's not just a gimmick. Their song, as you said, it does reappear one and maybe two other times in the film. But that song sort of haunts the whole film because after that point, we see mostly women and follow women through stories, but you still get the sense there's that echo of the men singing that mm-hmm. that their choices are still dominating the reality that these women have to live within. And so that makes Enid, Martindale's character, um, both both um, scary and sympathetic. I mean, she's yeah. she's threatening, as you said, uh, especially when she starts to, to, I don't want to spoil anything, but to sense what the two sisters have gotten themselves into and how it might be related to her. Um, she's frighteningly funny at the same time. There are a lot of good comic um, bits and gestures that Martindale gives you. She basically makes this, she's not a villain. She's a tragic figure, right? You revile her, yeah. you root for her. And she has some really great scenes that, that, embody more than the two lead actresses, I think, and by intention of the screenplay, embody, you know, the conflicts at the heart of this town. A lot of people underestimate young women. That's why they can get away with a lot. We had a good run, your mother and I. Made a lot of money, too. She's a natural businesswoman. You worked at the fish shop? Do these look like fish manga hands to you, dear? <laughs> ah, given that your mother and I go way back, I want your girls to know that if anything ever happened, you can come to me. I've seen it all. And I won't judge. Yeah, there are so many wonderful performances in this film, including one of the sisters, Priscilla, I think, Sophie Lowe in particular. But Margot Martindale, I think we all knew she was a treasure already. This movie just further confirms that. There is a ruthlessness to her that the role requires, but with just enough humor and a hint early on of sadness that, makes her a movie character for sure in a lot of ways, especially a noir movie character, but she absolutely feels like a real person all the time. And that whole conceit you mentioned of the three women who kind of watch over and run the town from the shadows, and those performances are such a treat. June Squibb, who people will recognize probably from Nebraska. She was also in About Schmidt. Annette O'Toole, Marcelin Hugot are the other two women that make up that trio. And you are just always a little bit disarmed by them. You regard them a certain way based on their appearance, based on their manner of speaking. And then you start to realize that they really are in control of a lot more than maybe you would ever give them credit for. Yeah. And just to reference um, a few of the references that are probably popping to people's minds beyond Fargo, I think two great films with simple in the title neo-noirs really blood simple another coen brothers film and then sam raimi's a simple Simple plan Plan. which i think is very underrated um but those two throwing those two titles out there you get a sense of what the filmmakers are are going after here there is a scene let's just say with a a body and a cooler 
that hits that very difficult note of grisliness and and really mordant humor that not all filmmakers can can master. And if you hit it wrong or off just a bit, um, it can really feel icky or cruel or or just or even mm-hmm. sadistic. Um, and I think that Cole and and Crudy here do manage that that balance pretty deftly um, for for relatively new filmmakers yeah. in a way you can imagine that scene being lifted directly from and this is in a good way something like uh, Blood Simple and a Simple Plan and that's not to say they're just borrowing those tricks because I think we've already established the many ways Blow the Man Down is also unique yeah and I think the filmmakers here do something really clever which is earlier they show Priscilla the older sister cutting the fish she works at her mother's fish shop this is the family business and we see her slicing a fish with a lot of skill with the very knife she's going to use later. And so we understand that she knows how to use it. And then we get to do the math even before the characters have when that scene happens, right? We as viewers know exactly what's coming. We've seen her do it and we know that she can. And you mentioned those other movies, A Simple Plan, some of these films that can be really intense and have a lot of tension and dread to them. I was honestly a little bit resistant to watch this movie just based on the plot description without having watched any clips or the trailer because I didn't need two insomnias this week, you know, (laughs) and I didn't, I didn't need to suffer through all these moral compromises and crimes, but that's not really what this film is. There is a firm sense of character and place and stakes to the movie without it ever being suffocating. And it is really playful. And yes, there is a Coen Brothers element to it. Certainly Fargo, as you mentioned, in terms of these regional characters and the accents. I'm not an expert. I'm not from this part. I'd have to consult our producer, Sam Van Halgren from New Hampshire. But in terms of accents, I feel like they really nail that New England patois. Yeah, I wouldn't know either, though though what I've heard is Maine is particularly distinct. So yeah, if there is an expert who is impressed by this movie, that is that is another uh, level of accomplishment that it that it has. So did it strike you? I've seen a couple of people and I had this impression too, Adam. I'm I'm thrilled with the movie we got, um, but I could also see this working very well as some sort of limited television series. As a matter of fact, I almost, hmm. the, the one thing I do wish is that it it was able to have maybe a little more patience or just a little more running time, or maybe it's just a fact of so many good characters that you want to follow and be with longer. Um, but I, I, I did, it did strike me maybe about a third of the way through or, or even a little bit more that this would be a great series as well. For sure. And I think that is to its credit, ultimately, that it makes me wish that there was a six or eight part series where we got even more of the history of this town and how these women came to be in these positions. And maybe at the end, I'd have to think about it a little bit more. It comes together a little too neatly and you wish it could have done a little bit more in terms of filling in a few of those blanks. But overall, this is a film that is undoubtedly a golden brick contender in terms of the use of light. I love that ghostly pale Hmm. main light that it takes advantage of here and the way especially early on when the camera is on the two sisters when they're not in the same space with priscilla the good girl it's much more formal and still and reserved and then whenever it's with mary beth who's the chaotic one the camera is chaotic and more handheld i also will say i'm keeping a running tally i've never done this before but having seen so few 2020 movies to this point just because of the current situation 
when I reviewed Birds of Prey, and review is not the right word, when I had a little blurb on Letterboxd about Birds of Prey, the last movie I saw in a theater, I found myself just drooling over Sal's perfect bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. <laughs> and I just saw that movie coming off of First Cow with Cookie's Oily Cakes. Yeah, the Oily so, Cakes. I decided this is a new category maybe for our end of year wrap party, the top five movie foods of oh, the year. I'm on board. I've got Sal's. I've got Sal's bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, number one. I've got the oily cakes, number two. And number three right now, it's not the halibut they serve at one point, which is another insomnia tie-in because that's all they have at that yeah. hotel lodge restaurant. Yeah, I'm wondering but where you're the, going here. It's the cinnamon coffee cake. Oh, yeah. Those three women. <laughs> who basically run the town, served to Alexis, who's also really good. Gail Rankin, you might recognize her from Her Smell. She was also in Glow on Netflix. But she sits down with those women at one point. She's one of the prostitutes under Margot Martindale. And they give her some cinnamon coffee cake, I think with some hot cider. And I I wanted to be in that room so badly. And isn't that the scene where she she leaves in a huff and she just leaves it she there? She leaves it up. And she left it yeah, there. See, that's why. <laughs> one of my one of the things that just tears me up in film when when great looking meals and gets left behind. Food is just left there. I'm with you. You you're more you're more of a sweet tooth than me. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the ranking. I think you have the rankings right. The egg sandwich is definitely up there on top. And and yeah, we're we're gonna have to rethink maybe some of our awards. I like this category. We've mentioned the 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 lighting and some of the compositions. So just real quick, the the cinematographer here is Todd Ben Hazel, I believe is how you pronounce it. So so some really excellent work. That sort of main lighting you describe, Adam, is another carryover, I think, with insomnia. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, you briefly referenced the ending to this film will not give anything away, but I love how it inverts um, that chorus we've talked about and uses it, you know, differently in a very purposeful punctuation Absolutely. mark way. Yeah. Blow the Man Down, once again, currently playing exclusively on Amazon Prime Video. So if you have an Amazon Prime account already, it is free to you. We are overdue for some overview talk, Adam. Our revisit of Christopher Nolan's Insomnia is next, plus a new film spotting poll, essentially a battle of 1984 creature feature comedies. Stay with us. This is my daily routine. Spend my hours on If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat. 
after midnight. Three rules that every child of the 80s knows from the trailer for Joe Dante's Gremlins. The movie arrived in theaters on June 8th, 1984, the very same date another iconic 80s movie also came out. What a time to be alive, Josh. Ghostbusters. Oh, we were riding high, weren't we? As uh, what, yes. nine and 10 year olds, I think we would have been. That's right. So yeah, summer of 84, on Memorial Day, we got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I remember being scarred by that. And then two weeks later, Ghostbusters and Gremlins. A week after that, The Karate Kid. I mean, you were just living, Adam. Yeah, I think I've confessed to this before, and I wonder if you've got any other examples of this in your past. But when I see that note about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, it reminds me that there are two things that are just absolutely inexplicable from my cinematic past. Adoring Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark as much as I did. And honestly, at the time, maybe even loving Back to the Future more right around this same time period. And yet when Back to the Future 2 came out, didn't go see it, still haven't seen it or watch Back to the Future 3. And something kept me from rushing to the theater. And I didn't see Temple of Doom until I think later when it came on HBO. I don't know why. Well, I wonder, you know, at that time, parents had a little bit to say, maybe. (laughs) In, in the house of what you were seeing. I don't, sometimes it's just a matter of that. You know, the family didn't get to it. You only had a shot of seeing it at the theater. And yeah. I, this is one, Temple of Doom, I've got to talk to my dad about because I actually have a memory of, we're going to get to this, our, our movie-going experiences and memories of seeing an Indiana Jones film with him, but I'm not sure timing-wise which one it was. 84 seems right for how old I remember being, and the others, I would have been too young for this. So I got to clarify that myself. I know I saw Temple of Doom um, at some point when I was young in the theaters, but I got to get from him exactly when that would have been. I look forward to you reporting back on that probably next week because we're going to get into our 8 from 84 series with a summer 84 throwdown, a June 8th 84 showdown to be precise. It's Ghostbusters, which Sam, our producer, is positioning as Team Adam versus Gremlins, Team Josh. Yeah, and I while think that's I fair. understand, I, th- I understand Sam's compulsion as a producer. He's trying to drive up ratings, he's trying to make this into like. WWE. Okay, that's fine. But I do just want to point out for the record, even though I've probably, no, I definitely have given you grief in the past for not properly appreciating Ghostbusters. Yes, you have. And I do love Ghostbusters. Yes, you do. And I have seen it. I've seen it in the past five to six years and still really loved it. The reality is I haven't seen Gremlins since 1984. So I actually have no idea what team I'm on. We will see during this revisit. What did you think of Gremlins in 1984? I loved it. Okay. I loved it like every other nine-year-old kid. Okay. All right. So yeah, Sam is trying to maybe stoke the flames here a little bit because also keep in mind, it's not like I don't like Ghostbusters. Um, I, I am also a fan. I do think its reputation has been inflated and nostalgia comes into play. And my revisit of Ghostbusters not too long ago um, was probably a little more disappointing than yours, even if I came out still liking it. So that's probably what he's going for there. I do think Gremlins is brilliant. I know that for sure. Um, so I maybe I bet I think this is going to ultimately be right. I think 
at the end of the day, I will be a bigger fan of Gremlins than you, and you will be a bigger fan of Ghostbusters than me. That's probably fair. Probably. I do think that's also how it's going to come out, just because I adored Ghostbusters so much, but we need to see how this all goes. And maybe, I don't want to spoil any of the conversation next week, but as we are talking about these two films, it occurs to me that maybe part of it is just simply, I remember so vividly wanting to be a Ghostbuster. And... (laughs) Having that imagination where I pretended I was a Ghostbuster Uh and I made the equipment out of our vacuum cleaner and took the hoses and put a backpack on like I was I was way into it, Josh. And you know what? You can't do that with gremlins. No. What are you going to do? I, I did not want to be a gremlin. I think we've all established in 1984 I wanted to be Eddie Murphy. So that's covered. Right. <laughs> well, you can weigh in on this matchup right now. Find out which team you're on over at filmspotting.net. Ghostbusters v. Gremlins is the current film spotting poll. The outcome of that one, not really in doubt. And we knew that before we even posted it. We do understand the reverence for Ghostbusters. But honestly, it's a little bit closer than I thought it would be. And what we're most interested in is your feedback. So if you love Gremlins, let us know why. Josh for sure has your back. You got it. That poll, again, is at filmspotting.net. If you're missing the communal nature of going to the movies, a couple of film spotting listeners have got you covered. Wanted to highlight a couple of efforts out there. Love getting these emails from Film Spotting Nation. We have talked about Nigel Smith. You've hung out with Nigel Smith in London, right, Josh? In London. And then if I'm recalling correctly, he stopped by for a visit at a film spotting meetup in Chicago. I think he was there at a pub. So um, yeah. I think that was a farm bar uh, meetup. It, it, w- it was late, drinks were had, but I'm pretty sure Nigel was there. So the Tufnell Park Film Club, like many live events, it's now had to go online. So club members, and that's now open to everyone everywhere, watches a new film every week, and Nigel and his colleagues record an intro for every film. They give some context. The recent Lineup includes Pal Pressburger's A Canterbury Tale, Casablanca, The Purple Rose of Cairo, and The Seventh Seal. So if that sounds like something you'd want to participate in, some film spotting listeners obviously in that bunch. More information at TufnellParkFilmClub.com. We will link to it in our show notes over at FilmSpotting.net. In addition to that, a longtime listener, Tim Klobuchar, he's a high school English teacher in Charlottesville, Virginia. He has started the Quarantine Film Club on Facebook. That's T-E-E-N. So they're also watching a movie a week and then getting together on Thursday afternoons to discuss it. Uh, On their watch list so far has been Rear Window. I love that, showing Rear Window to teens. Also Raising Arizona, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, All About Eve, and Clueless. So a great lineup there for the Quarantine Film Club. Again, that's on Facebook. We'll put links to both of those, the Tufnell Park Film Club and the Quarantine Film Club, in the show notes for this show over at filmspotting.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. madness. I'm not sure this final word on Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s, is worthy of that clip, that great montage that Sam put together. But we did have a final bit of business just for fun. Last week over on our Patreon page, we posted the final final championship round we took parasite the winner of film spotting madness proper beating out the number one seed mad max fury road we pitted it against the winner of the film spotting invitation tourney which was the 32 also rands the 32 movies that just didn't quite make the cut for the 64 film dance and we will note 
that at the time we put together the list of 64 for film swatting madness portrait of lady on fire wasn't out in theaters and it definitely wasn't on hulu so it didn't make sense to include it even though me you and sam all felt like it was worthy of being in that competition we had to hold it over for the fit and listeners finally caught up with it and they loved it as they anointed it the winner of that tournament so we decided on patreon why not open this up to the public let's just see whether or not parasite would take all that momentum from film spotting madness and still crush portrait of a lady on fire or would this little film from celine sugiyama be so beloved and touch so many people that even though everyone's really just now in the past month catching up with it it might actually beat out the best picture winner josh did it no it did not i personally would have liked to have seen that but didn't go that way. Parasite won over Portrait 68 to 32%. There you go. Madness for now is over. Or is it? Because Madness 2021 is just around the corner. And as we've been talking here over the past few weeks about catching up with movies that are available on demand, or as we did on our recent top five, things were streaming during quarantine. We've got different blind spots we might be catching up with or random rewatches. We wanted to make sure listeners had plenty of time to see anything that they would need to see before next February and March as we kick off Madness 2021. And as you know, Josh, we had it all set. We had basically said on the show that it wasn't 100%, but that we were pretty sure we were going to do comedies. We were going to try to crown next year the funniest movie ever. And we even said that we thought we knew what the basic criteria would be, that we were looking for pure comedy. So we used the example, some of Wes Anderson's films maybe wouldn't fit into this tournament because they don't fit some arbitrary definition of pure comedy. Well, all I can tell you is about two Saturdays ago, Sam and I decided to set aside a few hours and we said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to get this list ready at least get a short list together of 80 to 100 films, post them for people to start watching. And as we both did that and started slacking each other, (laughs) we realized that we had no clue what we were doing (laughs) and that there were just way too many questions. He was suggesting that maybe Annie Hall didn't belong. And I'm saying, but that's a joke. Every scene, a joke, every line. How is that not a pure comedy? And then he's bringing up his girl Friday and we're going back and forth. And honestly, it got to a point where Sam said, you know, this isn't going to solve everything. But what if we called this film spotting madness? We gave it a title and it was something like spoofs, gross outs and sex comedies, the funniest movies of all time. We really needed to define it that clearly in order to even come up with a potential list. And that was when I knew that this list really just did not seem to me like the thing film spotting needed to be devoting months of work and time to. Yeah, the Annie Hall and His Girl Friday examples do show how tricky this is when it comes to defining. I mean, it's almost as if you'd have to start with the broadest comedy imaginable and work more down from that definition Mm -hmm. and hopefully fill enough slots where Annie Hall and his girl Friday don't have any room, but I see what you mean by the, you know, the number of jokes. If you do just count both of those films, I mean, if you were going to count by uh, verbal jokes in a film, yeah, I think they would, you could make a case that those should be in it. So, um, this maybe was a fruitless exercise. Yeah. So we had come to the realization that comedies probably wasn't going to work 
took a little break, and I swear to you, Josh, just like 15 minutes after this dialogue, we got this voicemail. Oh, hi, guys. This is uh, Bryce Maloney calling from Toronto, Ontario, member of the family. Absolutely love what you guys do. I uh, just heard that uh, Parasite won the Madness Contest. That's fantastic. I think this is the most entertaining and engaging thing you guys do over the course of the year. And I have a plea for you. I understand, listening to the show, that you're just about committed to doing the best comedies of all time. And I'm going to beg you guys not to do that. The reason is, uh, I'm sure you're already aware, this is by far the most subjective measurement of aesthetic pleasure, I guess you would say. Either you find it funny or you don't. You cannot convince somebody to like something if they don't already like it. And so much of what is fun about this contest is when we hear you guys talk about the role that the director played, how tight the script was, um, you know, maybe it's the production design. You kind of go back and forth on all of these criteria, these creative criteria, in determining which one is more worthwhile. And I just fear that none of that really is going to apply to comics. The only thing that matters is, is it funny or not? So we got that voicemail from Bryce, and just based on the timing of it, I wrote back to Sam and said, this is clearly a sign. The movie gods are clearly speaking to us and saying, don't proceed with comedies. And we decided that we're not going to. So as boring as it may seem, because we've done this decade thing, to me, it just feels right that having crowned the winners, the best films of the 90s, the 2000s and the 2010s, let's go back to the 80s, especially as we're talking about 1984 this year on the show. And let's figure out what listeners think is the best film of that decade. So we've put together the shortlist. It's already over on Letterboxd. There's, I think, 101 or two titles on that list that we're considering for the final 64 slots. There, of course, will be 10 to 15, at least, that will compete in play-in polls. And Josh, the debate, the gnashing of teeth over <laughs> the films we've omitted from even this list of over 100 it's already in full force. Well, have no fear. I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll probably end up doing some sort of fit tournament for this one as well. Oh, um, yes. And, and yeah, in true film spotting fashion, I think Best of the 80s is where our discussion started <laughs> many hours and many Slack chats ago. So it, it does make sense that we've come full circle back to that. And I'm excited about it. If you want to see that list of films and start your homework, you can go to the main page of filmspotting.net. There's a link. You can go to filmspotting.net slash madness. We will also put a link in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net. And one last comment. As I look at the list, I think it is 104 titles, Josh. And of those, there are only nine that I haven't seen. And three of those nine are movies that I probably did see as a kid. I just never sat and watched them in one viewing and don't really remember. But I remember watching tons of parts. Movies like David Cronenberg's The Fly, I still consider a blind spot, even though I know I've seen a ton of The Fly. So there's three of those. But I only have nine blind spots. And as we have already noted, we're kids of the 80s. Someone just posted in the comments about 24 hours ago and said, oh, man, I've only seen like 29%. I have so much work to do. And I 
haven't seen their age yet, but I'm guessing they're a much younger listener who just didn't grow up with these films. Yeah, in which case there'll be a lot more homework, but I think you're right for me too. I have to go back through it entirely and see. There will be a lot of those that I have vague memories of, and so it'll be a matter of whether I want to revisit to to make an honest vote. So we'll see what happens there. I'm looking forward to the fun already. And if you're interested in more fun every two weeks on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you'll find a new movie pairing, a recent release with a classic, your hosts, the great Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. This week, they start a new pairing. It's called High School Confidential. So they're going to do the new Bad Education. This stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. It debuts on HBO this weekend, and it's directed by Corey Finley. Finley made 2017's Thoroughbreds. So they're going to pair Bad Education with Alexander Payne's Great Election from 1999. One of those films I really wanted to get to, Adam, when we did our 9 from 99 series, but Mm -hmm. there were so many great films from that year we weren't able to. Election starring, of course, Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. So you can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday at midnight, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. You've heard us talk for sure over the past several weeks about the film spotting family over on Patreon. This really is truly the lifeblood of the show. It's what's keeping us going. And maybe you're thinking you just don't have time to consume any additional content like the monthly bonus shows. That may be true. But another big perk, at least that's how we're going to try to sell it, Josh, of being a family member is that you do essentially become a part of the show's production team. Talking about future show content, not only bonus content, but what you hear on this show film spotting every week, the Madness 2021 topic, all sorts of dialogue and polls going on over there. And we appreciate every bit of feedback that we get. For those who like the extra content, we have that too. And earlier this week, we dropped an unplanned two-part bonus episode about Alex Garland's devs on FX on Hulu. Part one was my conversation with a longtime listener and a family member, an AI expert, and a former PhD student in AI who also hosts his own movie podcast. Stephen Miller joined me. We got into a little bit more of the science of devs, or I tried to set him up so he could talk about the science of devs, and I didn't get too far out of the shallow end of the pool, Josh. In part two, me, you, and our producer, Sam, got into all of the stuff that didn't require advanced degrees. Yeah, we left that to Stephen and got into a lot of other great stuff, though. I mean, we talked a lot of production design. We talked about the performances and and kind of where we each landed on uh, Forrest, the lead character played by Nick Offerman. So a lot of good stuff there. And uh, again, it's, it's there on Patreon. So if people are still... Um, finishing up devs, or I think I think someone, it might have even been Nigel, said in the UK, it's, it's just been made available. Um, these bonus episodes are all still up at Patreon, so if you join the family a little bit later, you'll get access to all of them. And I don't think our family members will begrudge me too much if I do this, but I've been thinking about since that bonus bonus episode with Steven was completely unplanned. I might actually make that public here at some point and just give people the chance to come over to Patreon, sample some of the content and hear that conversation because I really do think if you have watched the series, I think Steven does a really nice job of putting it all in perspective. So 
that might just happen. We also recently got this nice note from a new family member on Patreon. His name is John Porter. During my crisis-inspired search for meaning, I finally found my way to Patreon to support my favorite of all podcasts. Having lived outside my native Midwest USA, currently Antwerp, Belgium, for 25 years, I could probably enjoy you guys reading the phone book. The accents bring me back. But most importantly, you have given me the gift of smaller films, which have sustained me during the current situation. Ever since the Kenyan Film Society, nod to Sam, offered up the Lena Vertmuller Festival in 1979, I've been drawn to the obscure and underappreciated auteurs of the Golden Brick Candidates. These films are a gift from you guys, and through these challenging times, I'm tearing through the back catalog. Many thanks. Well, many thanks to you, John. And I'm sure he means by accent, he means no accent, right? I mean, we're Midwesterners. Yeah, there's there's not supposed to be anything there. It's just flat, <laughs> There right? isn't. Thank you for being a family member. Thank you for your support, John, and to everyone who has jumped on board as a patron. We also did get a PayPal donation this week and have a few subscribers still over there. I would encourage anyone who's contributing five bucks a month or more on PayPal to go ahead and make the jump over to Patreon. It's really easy. And obviously you get a lot more bang for your buck in terms of the benefits. But wanted to say thanks to Michael T in Lexington Park, Maryland for his one-time donation. Some of those other benefits, Adam mentioned ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You do get early downloads. So the weekly show comes out a bit sooner than you would receive it otherwise. We do live pre-sales and discounts offer a merch discount. And then again, as we've been mentioning, these monthly bonus episodes for May. And again, we let family members on Patreon vote which topic they would like to hear us cover. Uh, For May, the three options are a We Were Wrong Once revisit of Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, or a bonus 8 from 84 review of the Hayao Miyazaki film Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, or the other option, we would do a bonus Betty Davis marathon review of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So family members on Patreon are already voting on those options. If you want to get in and have your say, head over to patreon.com slash filmspotting and cast your vote. Right now, the We Were Wrong Once the Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou conversation is leading the pack and doing so with a fairly wide margin of votes, Josh, though the comments have been full of some Wes Anderson, not haters, just people who are maybe a little bit fatigued with Mr. Anderson and think he already gets enough love on the show, which is probably true. And so they'd like to see something else. But right now the family is overwhelmingly voting for that. And I was eager to talk about any one of those three. This is the second month in a row that we've included the Betty Davis option. It'd be a perfect way to wrap up our marathon talking about that film, which you've seen and I haven't. So whatever happened to baby Jane is a blind spot for me. That would be perfect. I think if she doesn't win this time, Betty is probably going to have to be sent off to that Island and she's not going to get to come back. On the leper island Patreon page. Yeah. The leper Island, unfortunately for Ms. Davis, but The Life Aquatic, I've said it before, is a movie that I only saw once on DVD back when it came out, back pre-film spotting. Had no venue at that time to review films and didn't have a lot to say about that movie. I just remember being really underwhelmed. I remember feeling like that's what people talk about when they talk about Wes Anderson almost being a parody of himself. And that wasn't a thing yet because he didn't have enough movies, but I can retroactively fit it into that kind of paradigm. It just seemed to me like all of the things I loved about Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums wasn't in The Life Aquatic. And 
I'm willing to bet I'm wrong about that. In a lot of ways, it's Wes Anderson cranked up. I think that's fair. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll get a chance to dig into that a little more deeply. I, I, of course, have no fatigue. I mean, we were doing the Wes Anderson Marathon at our house and watched Life Aquatic, I think, maybe it was about a month ago. Um, yeah, I, I'm ready for another revisit. It's been a while. No fatigue there from Josh. You heard it. If you would like to vote and you'd like to hear that bonus content, whatever it might be, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Police! What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. Dormer here. Killing changes you. It's like awareness. Who am I speaking to? That's from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Insomnia, Nolan's third feature after Following and Memento, and the third film, then, that we are covering in our Christopher Nolan review. So Insomnia, a little bit of a turn for Nolan after those first two films. It's a remake of a 1998 Norwegian film of the same name. The plot here, an L.A. detective played by Al Pacino is sent along with his partner, played by Martin Donovan, to a remote village in Alaska where a teen girl has turned up dead. And things get even more complicated once Pacino does figure out who the murderer is. Spoiler alert, something the movie spoils about halfway through, I think, is that that murder is played by Robin Williams. Also, this is uh, a situation where the sun never sets in Alaska at this time of year, so it does give Pacino's character the title condition. A lot of time is spent on him trying to tape up that hotel room window, get those curtains drawn so he can get any sleep at all. Hilary Swank also in the cast. Looking back at 2002 Insomnia did all right at the box office, $67 million in the United States, over $100 million worldwide. Critics were pretty kind to it, 92% right now score on Rotten Tomatoes and at Metacritic, it gets a 78. And that's based on reviews that came out at the time, including raves from A.O. Scott, Roger Ebert, and then some guy named Scott Tobias, who was writing for the AV Club back then. Adam, despite all that praise, you and I had insomnia near the bottom of our Nolan ranked lists over on Letterboxd. Remind me, was it at the very bottom for you? Yeah, very bottom. Okay, very bottom. And I think I had it third to last. Um, I think The Dark Knight Rises was behind that. And then probably something that will change pretty soon here is Interstellar I had at the bottom. But yeah, insomnia pretty low there for both of us. So let's start by hearing from someone who is a big fan of the movie, and that's longtime listener Joshua Youngerman. Hey, Adam and Josh from Film Spotting. This is Joshua Youngerman, friend of the show, calling in to talk about insomnia. Um, I've always thought this was really underrated uh, by Christopher Nolan, and uh, upon rewatch, I do think this is it holds up and is, in fact, a really major, major film in his uh, body of work. It's one of his best films, and I love most of his films. Um, I think, first of all, I think it's, it fits really comfortably in with his sort of oeuvre. Um, Will Dormer is someone who's haunted by grief, haunted by guilt. And, you know, one only thinks of Cobb in Inception, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, in the way that 
that character is also haunted by this grief and guilt that he can't escape. And in fact, both Cobb and Will Dormer spend most of the film in this sort of dream reality where they can't make out the difference between what is real and what isn't. Um, and I also just think from a technical level, the, the fog chase scene is up there with anything in his uh, career. Uh, look forward to your review of one of Christopher Nolan's best films. Thanks, Josh, for that. He makes some good connections there. I think particularly a few of them that are suited to our oeuvre viewing. Uh, Aside from the comparisons to Cobb that he mentioned, I also noticed, Adam, that like Inception, insomnia ends with a shot of a small object that holds great significance. So another sort of trick or move there that Nolan will return to. Now, Adam, we probably agree with Josh on much of what he said, but I wonder if taking the film as a whole, we're still going to disagree with him. As I just mentioned, Insomnia ranked near the end of our Nolan list, but that was before this revisit. Now, back in 2002, I had huge expectations coming out of Memento from Nolan, expectations that maybe weren't fair to place on something like Insomnia. I also didn't have seven other Nolan films to consider it alongside and maybe to Mm -hmm. see the ways that this more conventional effort, I mean, a remake, no less, might still bear some distinct Nolan trademarks. So now that we have those other films in our memory banks, what was it like watching Insomnia again, Adam? Did you like it more or less is kind of the basic question, but I'm also curious more specifically What ways does it now strike you in 2020 as particularly Nolan-esque? Well, I definitely liked it more. And it's still a tricky question, even though we have those films in our memory banks, because as much as we have jumped ahead a little bit in our overview with Nolan in terms of these conversations, looking at following and talking about how we saw in it some of the same elements we would see in other films. I have, for the most part, been so focused on taking each film individually, primarily because that's what's freshest in my mind, obviously. But I've also wanted to track that trajectory. So I haven't spent a lot of energy anticipating what's to come. But I will play along. And I think that Josh Youngerman really nailed it in the direct comparisons, obviously, to Inception, but especially talking about Pacino's character here, Will Dormer, his grief, and especially his guilt. This is a detective haunted by acts that he's committed, by acts others have committed, that he's sought justice and retribution for. I think about even McConaughey's character in Interstellar, consumed by guilt for a choice he made for leaving his family. I think you do see it, in both of the magicians, in The Prestige, and I think we could go on through other films, and you talk about morally compromised characters like Dormer. Fundamentally good, perhaps, but to use his own line to Hilary Swank's Ellie at the end, has lost his way. Can we not point to similarities in Batman? They're both vigilantes. They're playing cop and judge and jury. And how about even seeing Finch as a Joker-like agent of chaos. I'm speaking, of course, of the killer here, the Robin Williams character. He is consistently and not inaccurately pointing out Dormer's hypocrisy, society's hypocrisy, and he's always one step ahead in his planning, just like the Joker is. And I think if you conjure up the voice of Heath Ledger as the Joker in your mind and read this line from Finch in the movie, it fits perfectly. You and I share a secret. We know how easy it is to kill someone, that ultimate taboo. It doesn't exist outside of our minds. So undeniably, whether looking ahead 
or looking back to following in Memento, as I'm sure we will a little bit, Nolan's DNA is all over Insomnia, even though to this point, ironically, it's the first one, and I think maybe still the only one in his oeuvre that is a screenplay he's not credited on at all. Yeah, I think that is right. And Insomnia, of course, being a remake, the original screenplay, the 97 screenplay written by others, Hillary Seitz here, though, gets the screenplay credit for Nolan's version. And th- that's good. The the Williams character, the Finch being a joker, like that makes so much sense. And, and you can absolutely hear Ledger's voice for all of those lines. There's a little bit of philosophizing um, going on there. Uh, and, and the anarchic element is there too. Um, he's not just trying to get away with something, Finch, but he's trying to get away with it cleverly, right? Yes. And he's trying to yeah. shake things up at the same time. So so he's a risk taker as well. So I love that parallel. And I think all of those characters that you've just listed, this is another Nolan trait. They all come with pre-existing trauma in some way, whether it is grief mm-hmm. or whether it's guilt. And often those are intertwined. We don't always see that suffered in the film at hand, in the narrative proper. It, it's kind of already there when we meet these characters. So that's something they share. My Nolan-esque answer is probably something a little more technical and specific, and it just has to do with the cinematography here by Wally Pfister, who you know did work with Nolan previously in Memento, so we've already seen his work, but I think it will come to define a lot of the Nolan imagery that, that we think of nowadays, and a lot of it has to do with the use of landscape, right? Think of that fog scene that Joshua mentioned, uh, how it's like this rocky coastal area that we're exploring in the fog Mm -hmm. and how gripping that is. But also you can see it in that overhead shot of they're like ice flows on the water that we get as the plane approaches. And so much of that reminded me very much of that, the water planet, the wave planet in Interstellar. And of course, Mm. a different cinematographer there, Hoyte van Hoytema, who Nolan is working with. But just that eye for landscape and wanting that to kind of be part of the, the feeling, we didn't really get that in Memento. You know, Memento was more rooted in specific buildings and rooms and streets even yeah. and didn't yeah. expand. Interiors and yeah, interiors yeah. of the mind as well. Yeah, it didn't really expand beyond that. So that was one thing that that I did notice is just the 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 newly found eye for landscape. You know, here and in terms of what I took away in a revisit, one thing I will admit I was wrong about is I did describe it in my original 2002 review as expertly conventional, which was a positive review. I gave it three out of four stars at the time. But I, I think it's more than expertly conventional. It's probably not all that conventional at all. It's probably conventional compared to Memento and even maybe following. But think about how clever it is and unconventional to have these two mysteries at once. Dormer's cover-up of this shooting at the very beginning, right? And then the investigation of the girl's killer. So you have two two movies going on here. Um, And what's interesting are the ways they relate. It's also unconventional to have this noir. It's another riff on a noir, but of course set while the sun is out. And there's, there's kind of a visual unconventionality to it. Yet I also do, you know, have to say both of those elements are borrowed from the Norwegian original. So it's so it's not exactly something that Nolan or, or the craftspeople he's working with here bring to it. I'll say, and maybe we'll get into this, um, I probably, though I do still like Insomnia, I wouldn't say it's the black sheep of his filmography, which implies something negative. I probably did like it a little less even on this revisit. And I have some, you know, some specific reasons. I, I think it was... 
some of the performances and how some of the characters were handled. I'm curious to hear what you made of Pacino, Adam, because I don't want to say he was bad here, but I did find him very uneven. And I, I found, and maybe this makes sense with someone like Nolan, who is still, you know, a major studio project with major stars. This is the first time he's doing that. It, mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a challenge of how much power he had to modulate Pacino, because I did feel like he was unmodulated in a way that bothered me more this time around. Okay. I was anticipating this and kind of dreading it because I'm a huge fan of Pacino's work in this film. And I want to get there, but I want to circle back just for a second and say that, yeah, the movie for me still feels like, I suppose, a little bit of a disappointment in terms of his work, just because it doesn't seem as audacious. It does feel generic. And you're right. It's another film that's definitely rooted in a genre, in this case, the serial killer movie that we have all seen a million times before. But there are elements that elevate it, including that fog scene that is wonderful that Josh touched on and just the moral murkiness of it. I think your defense is really good, not only in the way it is two movies kind of going on at once, but if you think about and really try to break down Dormer's motivations in some of these scenes and the double crossing that's even going on within double crosses, like when Williams' character is being interrogated or Dormer is trying to set him up and telling him that he shouldn't go and suggest that Randy might really be the killer. That's that's Pacino angling. That's Dormer just angling for his own motivations. But the movie doesn't really just hand that to you. It does expect you to navigate all of that. But you mentioned Wally Pfister, who I think was on a run with Nolan from Memento up through Inception. And it's just funny to me that his debut film is all black and white. And then we go to Memento and it's this combination, obviously, of black and white and color. And then we get to Insomnia and it's finally an all color movie, but it's so bright and it's so washed out in some sequences under that incessant light that it almost could be black and white, which isn't to say there aren't some sequences that don't take advantage of the color. But that's definitely something that struck me. And I'm thinking about Memento, Josh, as I'm watching that opening prism scene that he cuts to and some of the flashbacks, just like flashbacks that Leonard has, some of those flash cuts and him sitting in a chair feels like cutting to Sammy Jenkins sitting in a chair or Leonard sitting in a chair. Even that recurring motif that we get of the blood Mm -hmm. soaking through the cloth makes me think of the tattoo ink in Memento and some of those items of clothing. We have Dodie Dorn, too, as the editor, the same editor as Memento. And I think she did just these two films with Nolan, if I'm right, looking at IMDb. And you've got those phone call scenes. How about the phone call scenes? Every, yeah, Debbie noted that too. <laughs> every one of those sequences that comes back to Pacino, here the difference is he's a listener instead of the one talking like Leonard is, but it breaks up the movie consistently, those conversations that they have. So I was definitely thinking about Memento there, and you touched on the end shot, but the necklace that is a key plot point, the signed book, those are mementos. And that is something that, we have mentioned with every one of his films so far, and we'll continue to do that through this look at his work. Pacino, I love it. I was waiting, honestly. I had no real recollection of what this performance was like, and I really was waiting for something more on the decibel level of Vincent Hanna in Heat mixed with the Colonel in Sen of a Woman. And that's not at all what you get here, especially because those characters, too, are always talking. And this character is always listening. He is always watching. He's always processing. And I really think only a talent like Pacino can 
do as much as he does. I mean, of course, De Niro and there are others who do it, but Pacino can do as much as he does with so little. And he was always compelling for me. That takedown scene he has early on with Randy is just Pacino at his most dexterous, I think, with language and with sly little looks and with physicality moving closer to him when he wants to intimidate him a little bit. And throughout, yeah, he he looks haggard. He is exhausted as the character is. There's a, a weariness for me that Pacino wears perfectly in this film, always finding some new depth of the exhaustion and the despair, but never being a sleepy presence on screen. And in one of those exchanges with Finch, I'll just go to this one example. He says to him, you don't get it, do you? You're my job. You're what I'm paid to do. You're about as mysterious to me as a blocked toilet is to a plumber. That's <laughs> That's one of those lines that could have had that clip and the bravado of Vincent Hanna or of Colonel Slade, and it doesn't at all. I think Pacino really nicely here strips all of that bombast out of the performance. Yeah, that is a great line. That comes notably later in the film. That's on the ferry, right? When they have this mm-hmm. sort of first first meeting in public on the ferry to negotiate their positions. And he's excellent in that scene. I, I think he has some really great scenes throughout this movie. And notably, as I said, they do come later in the film after Dormer has been beaten down a little bit. And I do understand that that's part of the point, right? Pacino is so big and grandiose at the beginning because he's playing the legend of Dormer. And so he mm-hmm. has that moment where he comes into this backwater town and he's going to show these investigators how it's done in the big city Um, and when they discover the backpack so this is the scene where he grabs the backpack from another local cop they're all in a room with a conference table he dumps stuff out of it he's tossing things in the air when he goes to hand something to Swank I I swear he almost does like this ballet spin and then tosses it to her and it's so big Pacino and again I understand they're doing that so that he can be undercut once he gets broken down later. I think it goes back to that idea of modulation and Nolan maybe saying, you know, this is what we're going for and, and we're this we're getting it, but we don't quite need this much of it because it did take me out of of who Dormer was as he was more than a cocky cop at that point. He was Pacino. And I think there are a number of scenes that work on that level early on. But yes, once he gets broken down, it is very nuanced. He says less. I agree with you. And he looks haggard. He does a lot of of acting with uh, that exhaustion. He just wears. His whole body wears it. And so I wouldn't qualify this as a bad performance. I think, as I said, it's just an uneven one. What I like about that scene on the ferry, especially when they're going back and forth, is that that's the only one we we don't know exactly what Dormer is up to. He mm-hmm. he may be agreeing with Finch. He may be laying a trap for him. And we definitely can't keep up. And I think that's the distinction where the where the performance gets really slippery and much more interesting. Whereas those are some of those earlier bombast scenes, we know exactly what not only what Dormer is doing, but what the movie is trying to do too. Yeah. As a former English major, I will say not the most subtle touch here by Nolan and the screenwriters to call him Will Dormer, this guy who can't fall asleep. And Dormer sounds like Dormir, which is Spanish to sleep. Not that this movie has a lot of subtlety to it, right? Well, the town being called yeah, Night Ute, even though I, I think that's go. real. <laughs> and even some of the plot machinations, I think, in terms of Hillary Swank finding the bullet when she does at the end, even though that scene has been poured over and finding the newspaper in the accidental way she does, I think is is a little bit clunky. But I do want to go back real quick because it 
it just does identify a way that this movie is different from another Pacino movie and a little different performance, but also getting at what Nolan is mostly concerned with, which is that moral compromise. And I love the movie Heat, and there's a scene in that film where Hannah and his crew of police officers are in the back of like a semi truck or something. And they're staking out De Niro's crew. They know where they're going to strike. They're going to catch him in the act and arrest him. This is early in the film. There'd be no movie if this succeeds, just like there'd be no movie if they catch Williams as the killer when they're staking him out early on. And as the criminals come outside, one of the police officers accidentally bumps up against the, the metal door with like his nightstick or a flashlight. And they hear the sound and it ruins everything. They can't arrest them anymore because they just leave the job. So the whole point of that is Pacino and his crew are the ultimate professionals. It would never have made a slip up like that. And because of this unprofessional cop, their stakeout is ruined. Well, in this film, that happens with one of the cops yep. from this group who accidentally squeals the, the bullhorn. But when he goes and talks to that cop later in heat, the guy gets reamed for being so careless. In this movie, Dormer positions it like, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Because if he absolves him for doing something wrong in that scene, he absolves himself. He puts all the blame on the killer sure. in that scene. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and he's and it's also at that point part of his cover-up, right? He's trying to cover his tracks. And, and, exactly. And yeah, so that, that works well. You mentioned Swank, and you know this came at an interesting time for her. It was a couple years after her breakout, Boys Don't Cry, which was 99 but before Million Dollar Baby. And, you know, whatever whatever you make of her as an actress, the character is fairly thinly envisioned here. And, and yes. she's kind of, I think Swank is much better than this part, I guess I would say. It, it has a little bit of like the younger sister tagging along with the boys quality. And not only is that a little bit patronizing, but, but also it doesn't serve swank's qualities as a screen presence which is to kind of be a wall she's not a wallflower right and so i do think that's something that struck me even though i like how they position her as being the one who does ultimately come to save dormer you know i didn't quite remember how this worked out at the end and for a while i was like oh no please don't let this be dormer you know saving her being the white knight and i do like how there's an inversion of that um but up until that point i think i think swank is a little bit underserved and i also just don't think that climax overall is is that well staged josh pointed out i don't either yeah he pointed out the great fog sequence i i think the log rolling or the log sequence Mm -hmm. is fantastic but but it's a little clumsy right that ending it is it is and we'll get to that with batman begins in a little bit that was my big reservation with that film and something that i think nolan solved with the dark knight and with subsequent films in terms of some of these larger spectacles but even though there are some great action scenes in this movie, like the ones we've mentioned, that ending isn't it for me either. And you mentioned the editing by Dodie Dorn. I think the log sequence is where you really see that as well. You know, there's a mix there of a beautiful, again, overhead shot where you see all of these logs moving along. I'm not sure if it's a river, just a a bay at that point, but you get Mm -hmm. that mixed up with close-ups of the feet as Dormer is chasing Finch. And then you would suddenly get slipped in there an abstract insert of the patterns that the logs kind of created as they moved along. It's a it's a really beautiful sequence that also works as an electrifying chase scene. And also the editing at the very beginning, you know, where we get that switch from a shot of someone scrubbing blood off of their shirt, 
we go immediately to Dormer, to Pacino being jostled on the plane as he approaches. So, so mm-hmm. right away, we're even though we think, well, there's no way the the investigating officer we're meeting is the same guy we're seeing because we know we're looking at for a serial killer, but it puts that mental connection in our mind, right? Yes. But then, of course, we realize here's a trick. He is that man later in the film he we is. come to learn. So yeah, I, no. I love that setup. Well, I love that you bring that up too, because then we can maybe end by touching on Robin Williams' performance. Yeah, we should. And I think it's really good. I think that there's a a precision to it and a, a certain calmness to it, but it's not overly calculated or overly calibrated. It isn't, to me, an actor who's relishing the chance to play this hyper-smart serial killer. He's just a troubled morally compromised individual just like will and he's a dysfunctional soul and when the movie makes that comparison and it does explicitly in terms of the dialogue a couple times in lesser films with lesser performances you know that just feels obligatory it has to make that connection and say oh well the good guy isn't really as good as you think and the bad guy is probably not that bad they're really so much alike right except in this film you really feel it and I think the performances are a big reason why well and Williams could have gone off track in the ways you're talking about because at this phase of his career he was coming off of a lot of kind of cuddly stuff so goodwill hunting patch Adams Jacob the Liar, Bicentennial Man. And then we get this interesting run here right around Insomnia. Just before Insomnia was Death to Smoochie and One Hour Photo. So Mm. (laughs) kind of a similar character in One Hour Photo. I don't think it works quite as well. But I do agree. He's really good here. He's he's soft. He's quiet. And, you know, Williams has that little simpering smile he uses in a lot of his performances, but he uses it in different ways. Sometimes he manages to make it not simpering, but you, but you know, genuine and gentle and yes. ingratiating. But here, you know, it's not that one. It, it is sort of simpering and it, it, he, there's a certain creepy edge to it that just laces the performance with something more than, again, that cuddly, fuzzy nature he had in some other films. And I think he and Pacino, again, are great together. I think in, in their scenes working together are some of Pacino's best, in, in addition to you know those ones where he's physically acting alone that you mentioned. Uh, a last note, quick performance. Um, Martin Donovan in this as, uh, yeah. as Dormer's partner. You know, very small part, but this is a guy who has a, he has a ghost face already. And then in this film, they actually have him start to haunt, right? And it's just, yes. Yes. It's just perfect casting from that level, sort of, sort of how Pacino at this point kind of came to the movie pre-exhausted, which was perfect in some ways. Um, he just showed up looking like a guy who was haggard, and, and uh, this experience is just going to drain him even more. Martin Donovan yeah. is like, he, the first time you see him, he's this haunted guy already. Yeah. Faces that you immediately feel comfortable with and love seeing on screen. Martin Donovan, also Paul Dooley as the chief of police here in this town, and Nikki Cat as the yes, cop that yeah. Will Dormer has come in and supplanted. He he's just always fun. Nikki Cat is always fun on screen. Insomnia is available on demand on most platforms if you would like to revisit the film. So you appreciated it a little bit less than you did originally. I definitely appreciated it a little bit more. I have a feeling it's probably still going to end up somewhat near the bottom of our rankings by the time we get through this whole overview. But we're we're ranking them. We're re-ranking them as we go. We've only seen three. We both love Memento. Clearly, that's ahead of his first film following. Are you going to slot Insomnia just below 
following in last place because I'm going to slot it just ahead. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it yeah. is below for me, but I am still positive on it. I still think it's a really good film, has a lot to recommend it. I, it's probably more a case of me liking following a little bit more than you. But but right now, yeah, mm-hmm. I do have it uh, ranked memento following and then insomnia. So as a guy who appreciates order and structure as much as you do, Josh, are you really on board with this? I think you even suggested it maybe, or at least we're, we're very gung-ho about it, that we shouldn't just go in the order that Nolan's oeuvre goes in, even though that was the whole point of this exercise. And maybe we should talk about the three Dark Knight films as a whole. Yeah, I think it was good with that. Yeah, I think it was born out of your rankings of them all together, you know, as it stands now. And that just made a lot of sense to me. And so I'm still good with it. If you are, I'm actually excited about watching these as a group. So we made this decision as well, in part because we did revisit The Dark Knight fairly recently, August 2018, year and a half ago, almost two years ago on its 10th anniversary. And we didn't feel like we probably needed to devote another entire episode to that movie at this point. So let's still go in order. Let's go with Nolan's next film, Batman Begins. We'll give that a segment and then we will give the two Dark Knight films the second segment of that show. So you can look for that episode in a couple of weeks, which means you have a couple of weeks to get those viewings in. Josh, that's our show. It is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And over at the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 including that Dark Knight Sacred Cow review. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll at the website. It's our summer 84 deathmatch, Gremlins versus Ghostbusters. If you want a film spotting t-shirt or some other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. On digital this weekend, all three new movies we talked about earlier in the show, Sella and the Spades, Blow the Man Down, highly recommended by both of us as a Golden Brick contender, and new on digital at home on demand, The True History of the Kelly Gang. Can I throw a Golden Brick question at you? So we've got Blow the Man Down, and I don't know if you specified, but very early in the year, you had seen The Assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, which I still need to catch, but I don't know if we said if that was a golden brick or not. It certainly sounded like one by your description and your enthusiasm. Are, are those the two films we're looking at as candidates right now? I think so. And in fact, if you look at our film spotting brick page, filmspotting.net slash bricks, the assistant is currently the only film listed there. We'll add Blow the Man Down to it. I have thought about as we continue with this crisis, potentially, and a lot of big mainstream movies aren't being released, the Golden Brick then kind of becomes a little bit wonky, doesn't it? Because these aren't the standout obscure films in a year where you've got all these other big tentpole movies. It's all the smaller obscure films like The Golden Bricks. Yeah, that's true. So we might have to lean a little bit more heavily on some of the other things we consider, like first time or relatively new filmmaker, you know, striking artistic ambition or Mm -hmm. vision in some way, things like that. But yeah, we could, you know, we could have a very crowded field at the end of the year if it turns out where mostly what is available are these new films, but smaller films 
on digital release. Our 8 from 84, summer 84 edition, Ghostbusters v. Gremlins, is coming next week on the show. And we will share our top five movie-going experiences. So we're going to try to go way, way back. Maybe not. We'll have some recent ones in there, too, potentially. But maybe tap into some nostalgia and recall some of those past experiences. I will tell you right now, I am really scared about this list. I'm going to need the equivalent of Freud to hypnotize me and send me back into my past because I don't know. I end up watching a lot of movies by myself and that's not very memorable. <laughs> well, and as we've that's stated, my list. it's our preference for both of us, right? It is. <laughs> no, I've, yeah, for me, it's, I have a few that come to mind, but the details, as I mentioned earlier on the show are kind of fuzzy. So the childhood ones, I might have to talk to some family members, see what I can dig up. I certainly have those memories We'll see what I can uh, manage to say about them when we get to this top five. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Madison, Wisconsin's Disc. It comes from the album Collector. More information is at disq.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.